Amen. We're going to open up to Romans chapter 8 tonight. If you have a Bible, uh, we have been building up to this chapter for several weeks now. Uh, we obviously have been talking a lot uh, of game about how Romans 5 through 8 are some of the most important chapters in the Bible. And I'll probably take that even to another level tonight because I believe Romans 8 is even uh, is extra special uh, amidst all the special chapters we've already talked about. Uh, but I want to kind of uh, zoom out uh, over the whole book of Romans, something that we haven't done uh, in our study. And I want to kind of make sure that we do address this because it is important because we're entering into a new section. Uh, There are four distinct sections in the book of Romans. And obviously the first one begins in Romans one. Uh, and then uh, the next one begins around Romans chapter three. And now we're entering into the third section of Romans. And then the fourth section will be in Romans 12. So Romans one, Romans three, Romans three, it's kind of halfway through the chapter. Romans one, Romans three, Romans eight, and Romans 12 are the four entrances or four points uh, in the book of Romans that you should pay attention to. And they have, they have a very similar um, beginning in a very beginning structure. And we've talked about that a little bit, but you could almost break down the whole book by these, uh, by, by these terms, these four terms that we're gonna look at in just a minute. Um, but I, I've yet to show you these because again, we've been talking about so much that it's, I don't wanna put too much in front of you uh, and distract you from what's going on in, in the text itself. But uh, the four sections of Romans, you could break it down like this. The first section is about our condemnation, how we are in sin, we are in our flesh guilty before God. And we spent several weeks, uh, chapters one through three, around verse number 20, uh, talking about how the, the Romans one through three really proves our sinfulness before God. That's the purpose that, that Paul is writing with. That's the goal he's writing, that all would be uh, brought guilty before God, that every mouth would be open, that every, you know, uh, excuse would be uh, brought an end to that we would all realize that we are sinful, guilty, we are condemned before God in our flesh, and that there is nothing that we can do, and there is no merit that we can stand on, there is no leg to stand on that makes it otherwise so. And then we've spent the last couple of months, basically from chapters four to seven, uh, talking about justification, how we are justified by faith. And as much as the chapters four through seven are about justification by faith, they're also about how we are not justified or telling us how we do not find justification, which is why we spend a lot of time talking about the law, talking about religion and how none of those things justify us before God. We are condemned before God. We are guilty before God. We need something to justify us. Religion won't do it. We can't do it. Sin and our flesh hold us back. So Romans 4 through 7 make it very clear to us we are justified by faith alone in what God has done. And and, and along the way, uh, we have been building up to what Romans 8 introduces us to, which is the concept of unification. So from condemnation, justification to unification, uh, that's what Romans 8 is really all about. It's it's been kind of previewed in chapter 6 and 7, but it gets really uh, uh, defined for us and put clear in clear terms for us in Romans chapter eight. Um, And again, the two terms there, justification, unification, they kind of go hand in hand. Uh, To be justified by faith is to be unified by grace, that if we are justified, if we have put our faith in Christ, we have received from God uh, a transformation. We have received from him his grace, and that grace is uniting us with Christ. It's making us uh, a different creature, a new creature. And we've spent a lot of time the last couple of weeks, last month, talking about how we are new in Christ, how we are different in Christ. And we'll get into more of that tonight. And then later on uh, in Romans 12, we'll talk about sanctification, which is going to take us through the end of the book, that's still a few weeks away. So uh, tonight we're kind of entering the unification phase. Now back in chapter five, we were still learning about faith. Paul told us that by faith, we have access into grace, that God's grace is going to change us once we put our faith in him. Now, chapter six and seven let us down uh, this line with more emphasis uh, being put on our total trust in Christ and how that allows grace to change us and have an effect on us. Now, Last week, we revisited the concept of justification by faith, talking about how we're tempted to seek justification in ourselves and by law and by works. And we made it very clear that that is not the solution. Uh, Paul makes it clear that only through faith in Christ can we be freed from our sin and from our flesh. And that it's by Christ that we are not only justified before God, but we are unified with him. And that's what we're going to get into uh, into chapter eight, that we have been justified before God 
but now we have been brought into unity with God and that's going to leave us a different person. It's gonna make us uh, a much better person. Uh, now, the idea of unification refers to a higher plane in a lot of ways, as in what does it mean to be unified with God's heart and God's mind? What does it mean to be in step with who he is as a father, as our Lord, as our King, as our sovereign? Uh, we'll talk about all that over the next couple of chapters. Now, Really, we get into what it means for us now that we're in Christ, beginning in Romans 8. And in many ways, Romans 8 is the ultimate explanation. Romans 8 is the ultimate expression of Christianity. I know that's a big statement because the whole Bible, of course, contains the, the truth about God and the pathway to God and what it means to know God through Christ, uh, specifically the New Testament. But Romans 8, I don't think it's an overstatement to say Romans 8 is the ultimate expression of Christianity, as in what it means to be in Christ and what it means to be saved and, and what that does for us. Summarizing the work of salvation, bridging those concepts of being justified to being unified. Now, if you are a Christian, and, and everybody here tonight I presume is, if you're a Christian and you only had one chapter of the Bible, of course you have a lot more than one, but if you only had one chapter of the Bible, I think Romans 8 would be enough to, to take you from a starting point to transform you as a follower of Christ. Romans 8 can take us from salvation to discipleship, from justification to unification. Romans 8, and this is, I think, the big uh, kind of a defining statement that you can jot down and, and, and understand the chapter through. Romans 8 uh, takes us from believing in Christ to belonging to him and becoming like him. You believe, well, that's the starting point, but there's more, belonging to him. What does it mean to be belong to Christ? What does it mean to be God's child? What does it mean to be under his promises and under his power? Well, if you're interested and you're wondering, you're in the right place because Romans 8 is going to tell us what it means to belong to God and what it means to become like Jesus. Now, not only is Romans 8 the ultimate explanation, but it's also a genuine celebration regarding what Jesus has done and what he can do for us. If you uh, notice the language Paul uses in Romans 8, um, he's literally overjoyed while he's writing this chapter. He is full of joy, and it really is a chapter of worship. Um, it's a genuine celebration regarding what God has done for us and what God can do. For us. So if this chapter does not inspire worship, I don't know what else to offer you. Uh, Psalms 126 verse 3 says, the Lord has done great things for us and we are glad. And if you want to know just what kind of things he's done for you and you want to get real glad, Romans 8 will make it clear just what God has done and just why we should be so, uh, so full of worship and joy. If you're looking for some great things that God has done for us, maybe the greatest things that God has done for you, Romans 8 is the perfect summation. Now, I implore you, and, 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 I, and I, I say this about a lot of chapters, which of course I should, I do because I'm a preacher and I talk a lot about the Bible in general, but I implore you, bookmark this chapter, memorize. And I know you think I can't memorize a chapter. I, I pro probably, that would be a big step for a lot of you, but you can memorize some verses from this chapter. And this chapter, if you memorize any part of the Bible, if you study any chapter of the Bible inside and out, Romans 8 is worth it. Ring it out again and again. If you want to fall in love with Jesus, this chapter will cause you to see in God what he has done and how much beauty there is uh, to worship and adore and, and to, to offer to us. If you want to know and be informed about all that Jesus has done for you and offers you, read this chapter again and again and again. You say, well, should I read this one instead of reading some other chapters? I, I, I say just read it in addition to, right? I think you should read it. If you have a movie that you watch a lot, everybody has their favorite movies, favorite TV shows, favorite song you listen to, Romans 8 should be one of those favorites. Read it again and again and again, because I, I promise you, you'll be a better Christian. You'll be a more faithful Christian if you do. Now, again, it is a celebration, but it's also an explanation and it's an invitation to step from just believing to belonging and becoming like Christ. Now, I, I really don't, I don't want to oversell the chapter, but I don't think I really can do that. I think it's that good. I think it's that important. Maybe you've had regrets over a purchase before. Everybody's had regrets before, right? Somebody sold you on an item before and they were a little bit too good of a salesman and they weren't really telling the truth. Uh, maybe you have watched an ad before and you were convinced to buy something and you got the something and it wasn't as good as what you had been sold on. I promise you, 
This chapter will not underwhelm you. This chapter surpasses expectations. It provides so many promises, so much power, such great perspective that it will leave you overwhelmed every single time you read it. And I think it will always encourage you and it will challenge you, of course, it will challenge you to step out of what you may have settled for in terms of your faith. And it will challenge you to get all that you can from what God is offering you. Now, because I believe Romans 8 is a full table, it is a smorgasbord of Christianity and the promises of God. Um, three things I think this chapter will do for you. And we're just gonna get to one and a half of them tonight. It will change you for the better. It will fill you with the best and it will inspire you with boldness. Now we'll get with the boldness and the inspiration a little bit later, but tonight we'll get focus on the change for the better. But we'll also talk about what it means to be filled with the best, but we'll be talking about this over the next couple of weeks. It will change you for the better, fill you with the best, which will mean it may empty you of the worst, which is a good, good thing, fill you with the best and inspire you with boldness. So let's get into it. Romans 8, one through 11 is what we'll cover tonight. And we'll break it down a couple of verses at a time. Romans 8, verse one, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Right off the bat, I wanna break this down into two sections, Romans 8, one through three, then four through 11. Uh, there are two key concepts that you'll find in this passage that we are given a full view of what it means to be unified with God, what it means to be united with Christ in salvation. The two things are no condemnation, and total restoration. No condemnation, which is literally what we see in verse one. And then we'll talk about what restoration means in just a minute. But let's talk about condemnation first. Think back to the very first part of Romans. Um, the, the, ver the major things that Romans identifies that works against us as humans, that leaves us condemns, are these things. Romans one through three identify that we have a fallen nature and a sinful nature. Now these are really much, really the same thing, but I broke them apart for a specific reason. And I'll explain that. We are fallen as in Adam, in Adam, we are condemned. We can't even look at God. We are ashamed to look at God with our guilt. We have no desire for God because our nature knows that we are not worthy of God. Why did Adam hide in the garden? Not out of rebellion, but out of shame. He felt as if he was no longer worthy to look at God because that's what sin does to us. It makes us feel like God is not for us. It makes us feel separated. And indeed it does separate us from God. Our fallen nature convinces us that we will never be able to approach God. It made the children of Israel tremble at God's voice at Sinai. It made Isaiah cry out, I am undone. It makes us feel as if we will never have a chance at knowing God, much less belonging to God. And to make matters worse, our fallen nature exists alongside our sinful nature and it leverages our disconnect with God and it seeks to cement that gap with total rebellion and corruption. 
Our sinful nature is what we all inherit from the choice that Adam made. And these two natures feed off each other and just make our situation worse. One makes us think we'll never be able to, uh, to never be accepted by God. The other makes us do nothing for God. It makes us want nothing to do with God, spurring us to defiant and devious and sinful decisions and actions. Of course, the more we sin, the more guilt we pile up, the more shame we feel, the more power sin has over it. It's like a snowball. We just feel as if we can't approach God. Sin keeps us from God. The more guilt, the more sin piles up, the farther we get away from God. It's a vicious cycle that Satan has professionally churned people in for thousands of years. He's good at it. In the Old Testament, we see how shame and sin worked to keep people from God. Even though God was for people, people were not towards or leaning towards God. Now, religion didn't do anything to help that. It only made the burden of shame and sin worse. But as we learned, Christ has took away our shame and our sin, which is what that first verse is all about. There is no condemnation because Christ has took your shame and took your sin on the cross for you. And that's what leads to the total restoration that he talks about in the latter part of this section. Now that's what Romans 8, 1 through 11 summarizes. Verse one proclaims we are no longer condemned. And verse four builds on that and speaks of the restoration and fulfillment we receive in Christ. Now in chapter in eight, verse one, Paul uses a phrase that we see all over the New Testament, specifically by Paul. Therefore, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, if you go through your Bible, New Testament, and you were to underline everywhere you see the phrase in Christ, you would have hundreds of things highlighted. You would have hundreds of verses highlighted. In the book of Ephesians alone, it's, it's literally it feels like it's every other word in Christ, in Christ. Paul uses this phrase to, dis, to describe our salvation again and again. And it's very intentional. And I wanna talk about what this means. And I hope this makes us a little bit more excited about our salvation. And I hope that it makes us a little bit more thankful for our salvation, a whole lot more really. I wanna talk about what it means to be in Christ and why that specifically is why we are no longer condemned. Now, back in Romans 5, we talked about how we are in Adam and in sin. And, And this is what he's talking about. When we get saved, we are no longer in Adam. We are no longer in sin. We are in Christ. You see, this is a categorical thing. This is not a decision you make or a lifestyle. This is something that God has done. Now, let me explain. There's a difference between in Christ and by Christ and through Christ. In Christ refers not to what we have done or what we do. It refers to something that God has done for us. I don't want to move past this too quickly because I want us to make sure we give God the glory he deserves. Salvation is the work of God where he takes us out of sin and places us in Christ. Do you see the thing? Do you see the transition there? He takes us out of Adam and puts us in Christ. He takes us out of sin. So when, you, when we talk about being in Christ, this is not behavioral. This is categorical. God has taken us out of one category and put us in another category. And it's that category that makes us saved and that protects us from condemnation. When you put your faith in Jesus, when we surrender to God, confess our sin and ask him to save us, what we are doing is saying that God, I am a sinner. I am in Adam. Nothing I can do can get me out of sin. Only you can do that. When Jesus died, he removed our guilt. He removed our sin that makes us unworthy or unable to be put in any other category. Jesus has removed all of that. So when we say, I see what Jesus did. I see that he did that for me. I believe on the cross, he died for me. I believe his resurrection is for me. In that moment, when we shift our faith, On him, God lifts us out of sin 
and places us in Christ. Now, you see the emphasis is on something that God is doing. And I'm being intentional about that because this is so important that we don't misunderstand what salvation is and how we are saved. And I can't be more clear about this because this is so important. It defines and determines how we understand salvation. And this is what the Exodus story was always supposed to teach us about God and about salvation. The Bible over 80 times, there's a sentence that the Bible repeats again and again from the Old Testament to the New Testament, referring to what happened when the Jews were saved from Egypt. And here's one of the 80 times that it's mentioned. Remember, you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand. That 80 or more times in the Bible, we have this reminder, God took them by the hand with his hand and took them out of Egypt and placed them in the promised land. Now you've read the story. They walk out of Egypt, don't they? They cross the Red Sea. They wander in the wilderness for 40 years. They walk into the promised land. But how does God describe it? I took them out and I placed them somewhere else. Another place it says God took them and literally dragged them by the hand because they weren't about to leave on their own. They could not leave on their own. They were slaves. Do you get the point? If not for God doing the work, there would be no salvation. If not for God doing the heavy lifting, literally, there would be no salvation. Just as he promised Israel, as he took Israel, took them out of bondage and placed them in the promised land. When we get saved, he takes us out of sin and places us in Christ. So you know what this tells us about salvation? This is the whole point. This is the reason why we, we talk, we spent time on this. Salvation is a total work of God. We do not do anything to contribute to the process. Now, and I know, I know, I know, we believe, yes, we believe. But as far as the work of salvation, God is the one who picks us up because you could not get out of that if you wanted to. Salvation is about God picking you up out of sin and placing you out into Christ. And, and just a preview, he picks you out of sin because you couldn't get out on your own. And what do you think happens when he places you into Christ? Guess what this reminder that salvation is a total work of God should do? It should give us complete and full assurance because no work of God has ever failed or will ever fail. Amen? No work of God has ever failed. And what is salvation? A work of God. And if God never fails when he does something, what does that tell us about the nature of salvation? You see why I make a big deal about this? Because if God is the one who picks us up and God is the one who places us, what did we do? Nothing. Now, we trusted him, yes. We yielded to him, yes. But that's because the Holy Spirit convicted us and drew us. Jesus said this, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me, what's the word? Draws him. The Greek word there literally means to excavate someone out of their grave. Hello? The Greek word literally means to pull someone out of a grave. So how do we get to God? The Spirit of God draws us. Remember when Jesus raised Lazarus from the grave? What did he say? Lazarus, come out. He drew him out. A dead man came out alive. And that is a picture of what salvation is. Dead people walking out of graves because of the work that God does. 
Your salvation is a work of God. You know what that should make you do? First and foremost, it should make you fall on your face and give God the glory that he deserves because you do, we do not deserve that kind of a gift. We did not earn it. We didn't even work for it. God gives it to us. That God's spirit puts our sinful will at bay and works and breaks through our heart and draws us out. Your salvation is a work of God. You know what that means? You could rest in him. You can rejoice in him. You are in Christ. And therefore, there is no condemnation that can ever come your way. You hear that? There is nothing and no one that can condemn you because you are in Christ by the work of God. Everything that has ever or could ever condemn you has no authority over you in Christ Jesus. That's what verse one means. There is no condemnation for those that are in Christ. That means that the things that could judge you, the things that could condemn you, they have no authority over you because guess where you are? You are in Jesus' kingdom and Satan cannot accuse people in his jurisdiction. Satan has been disbarred in the kingdom of God. And when he tries to accuse you, God, the father, the judge says, you have no power to accuse in my courtroom because my children are under the jurisdiction of Jesus. And that means there is no condemnation that can ever find a fault in them. Now, you know what this should do to us? It should humble us because there's a lot of fault in us, isn't there? There's a lot of sin in us, not was in us, it's still in us. But what does this tell us about salvation? That God means business when he sent Jesus to the cross, right? This is legal language. This is legalese. This is courtroom talk. You've been placed in a special zone above the law. Look at verse two and three. For the law of the spirit of the life of Christ has made us free from the law of sin and death. The law that Satan used to accuse you with, you are no longer condemned by it because you are now under the law of the spirit of the life of Christ, which is a new order because of what he did on the cross and what he did in the resurrection. Verse three says, the law was weak in the flesh. God sent his son in the likeness of simple flesh to condemn sin. So what used to accuse us lost its power when Jesus died for us in our place. Colossians two puts it this way. God made alive together, referring to us, made us alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He set aside, nailing to the cross, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them into open shame by triumphing over them. Now listen, this is not something we did. Notice that verse does not say, because we repent, because we change, because we stop sinning. What does it say? God took our sin and nailed it to a cross. Jesus took your sin and set the law aside that condemned you and died to disarm the accusation and the condemnation. And you triumph because he triumphed. That's salvation. That's Christianity. It's not this hodgepodge of religion. Well, I do a little bit and God does a little bit and I have to do this and he has to do this. It's all what God has done. That's how important the cross is because your sin was nailed to it. Your savior paid for it and your savior forgave you of it. And now therefore, when you stand before God, the judge, as guilty as you are, as guilty as I am, as guilty as all of us are, God says, in Christ, come on in. Do you get that? Do you see how heavy that is? God says, you are in Christ. 
Is there anything that we have done or have to do that ensures our salvation? Absolutely not. Because that verse, Colossians 2, 13 and 15, Romans 8, 1 through 3, defines salvation as a work that God has done. Right? I mean, y'all can fact check me all you want to. I think it's pretty clear. And, and we should be out of our skin worshiping, right? And we, we should be ecstatic about this. God says they are in the cleft of the rock. They are under the blood. Their doorposts have the blood of the lamb on them. They are in the ark of safety. And because they're in the ark, because they're under the blood, because they're behind the rock, because they are in Christ, they are saved. So when we talk about salvation, don't you see why we should be a little bit more on our face before God? <laughs> you know, we, we often give our testimonies and, and I don't, I'm not trying to pick on anybody, but I'm, I, I do this. People say, you know, well, you know, t- tell me how, how did you get saved? And usually this, the, the sentence begins with I, right? You know, when we get to heaven and we stand before you know, we're, I know people always talk about the pearly gates. That's not how it's going to work. But we get to the gates of heaven and somebody says, hey, why are you here? And, and if any of us start our sentences off with, well, I, well, there's not even a category for I to even get in. He is the reason why we are there, right? I mean, the thief on the cross, I mean, what did he do? Nothing. Nothing at all. That's how powerful the cross of Jesus is. Now, are there implications of salvation? You bet there are. And we'll get to that in just a minute. But I don't want to move past this too quickly before we make it very clear. We are saved because of what Jesus has done. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So how are you forgiven? Because you're in Christ. Now, I know, I know, some really holy people and perfect people, people that never sin. People, really holy people will raise their hands and say, and maybe they're wringing their hands and maybe they're thinking already at me, Justin, Justin, that kind of talk is why we have a lot of people who think once they're a Christian, it doesn't matter how they live. I mean, that kind of talk, I mean, is the reason why there's a lot of people who say, well, I got saved back in 19-whatever, and, and, and it doesn't matter how I live, or they don't feel bad about how they're living. And you, you saying that kind of stuff's going to make them think they can just keep on sinning. Now, first off, y'all know me better than that. We spent a couple of weeks talking about doing the whole, I'm not in sin, I'm in Christ, and, and I'm not going to, we, we, we did that sermon. And I preached that sermon about four times a month. So we know better, y'all know better, that's not my message. Secondly, we're not done. We got about 10 more minutes left, so we'll get there. And third of all, didn't we just agree that no work of God ever fails? Right? Do you think that if God saves somebody, he saves them unto failure? Do you see what happens when we put all the power, when we put all the work of salvation into God's hands? You know what that actually does? It it strengthens the concept of salvation and it makes us have a higher understanding of salvation. Sometimes we talk about salvation as if people can get saved without God really knowing. Oh, well, how, they, how did, you know, they got saved, they stumbled in and, and now they're not living right. And I mean, you know, God can't be pleased with that, can he? Let me make this very clear. Nobody gets saved apart from God's power. We just established that, haven't we? God does the work. So everybody that is saved is under God's power. That makes sense? Nobody got saved on their own. And if anybody is saved, they're not alone. They're under the power of God. So there is no category for people who claim salvation but live as if they are never saved. And again, I'm not judging people. People, you know, just as much as I was talking, 
amen the stuff about God doing all the work, but now you start talking about people's lives and you know, judging people gets a little bit personal. But here, that's just the truth. That if there is no category for people who claim to be saved, but live as if they are not. Because if they're saved by the power of God, they are saved under the power of God, right? And if God's power is what broke in the grave and drug them out, do you think it just leaves them to stumble along on their own? Now, maybe you know somebody. Of course you do. Maybe you know somebody that they say they got saved or somebody told them they got saved because they don't even remember it, but somebody else was there and watched them. But they don't live like it. And they'll even be honest with you. And maybe they use some of the stuff we just talked about, a little less theological, but they use some of that stuff to excuse their sins. Church, I'm afraid, of a, I'm afraid there's been a lot of well-meaning churches, well-meaning pastors, well-meaning parents, well-meaning people, so desperate to get people saved that we water down the whole process into this repeat-after-me ritual. We wrung the power of God out of salvation and made it just a little ritual that people go through. And if people get saved under that powerless pretense, no wonder they don't have a legitimate relationship with God. Amen? I mean, if we make salvation to be this flimsy thing, oh, we just got to go do this and walk down there and just pray that prayer. And oh, it doesn't matter if you mean it or not. Just do this and you'll be there. No wonder people walk around as if it doesn't matter how they live because they don't even have the gift. If we preach salvation like it should be preached and let God do the convicting, we would not have any false professions. People coming to an altar and not even knowing what they came for. God is plenty capable of saving people if we make it clear that he is the one that does the job. People, all my ministry people have come to me and said, Justin, just, just you know, kind of, you know, go and talk to this person and, and just, just make it real easy and, and just tell them to repeat after you. I'm not gonna do that. Because it is the power of God that saves people. He doesn't need me to, to hold someone's hand and, and make them go through some motion that doesn't mean anything to them. He needs us to share the gospel and ask the Holy Spirit to move in their life because that's what changes people. And again, I know this might be sensitive because we all have children and grandchildren and brothers and sisters and parents who we know they're not living right and we know they don't know God, but they cling to some certificate or some ritual or something that tells them they're saved and they know better and we know better. Jesus said, if I am lifted up, I will draw people to me. But you lift up your religion. You lift up your little quick fix. It actually does harm. Now, do I think there's a lot of false professions out there? Of course I do. Unfortunately, yes. Because if God has placed someone in Christ, he has planted us in Christ. You see this? And, and this is why I made a big deal about God does it, God does it, God does it. And the people say, well, what about people that keep on sinning? If you have been placed in Christ, you are planted in Christ. If God places us, he plants us. And if we've been planted, well, y'all know, the, y'all know how that goes. The proof is in the roots and the fruits that we bear. Because if God has planted us, There's no question the connection we have to the source, right? If God did not place, then they have, there's no confidence in the roots and there's probably a question of whether or not the profession is real. Now, that's what verse four through 11 is all about. He says in verse four, the righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled in us who no longer walk according to the flesh. And that word walk is really the word live, live by the flesh. Walk, it's it's a Greek word that means to walk about or to walk around or to live your life as if. We're no longer in the flesh because we have been raised by the spirit. You see that? So those placed in Christ are planted in him. 
Now listen, there's a lot of different kind of plants out there. Some plants, you put them in the ground one day, and the next day there's buds and there's bud, you know, fruit. Some plants, you have to wait a whole season. Some plants look like they're dead for the whole season. Everything else is alive, but eventually they come to life. So not everything is on the same schedule. So I'm not saying if someone doesn't walk out of the church the day they're saved and start, you know, quoting the whole scripture and living as if they have been with Jesus all their life. That's, that's not the point to be inspectors and to be judgmental. But the reality of it is, if we are placed in Christ, we have been planted in him. And that life will show. Those who are alive in him, are living by him and living for him. And this is why the church has got to preach the gospel again and again and again, because there's a lot of people who listen to messages like this every week who are alive, who claim to be alive in him, but they're not living by him. They're not living through him. They're not living for him. And if that disconnect exists between you and God, there's a, there's a problem, a problem that I'm not upset about that you should be upset about, Right? A couple of things, verse four, it says fulfilled in us as in God puts this in us. <clears throat> verse five, for those who live according to the flesh, minds are on the things of the spirit. So you see there's a transformation from the inside out, right? Living by, living according to, their minds have been changed. Verse six says that in our flesh, our, our, you know, we're on, our mind is on sinful, deadly things. In, our, in the spirit, our mind is on life and peace. And verse seven makes it very clear that, there's, that to be carnally minded, there's enmity against God. So to profess something, but to still be living as if in, in our carnality, in our sinfulness, then th there's no life in us. And if there's no life in us, then we're not in Christ. It's not that difficult to understand, right? But uh, through all the different religious games and, you know, we have told people all sorts of things about salvation. No wonder people get it all confused. And no wonder there's so many theories about salvation and so many ideas about what it means to be saved and to, you know, not be saved or to lose because we've kind of made it a little too complicated. Verse eight makes it very clear that if anyone is in Christ, they are no longer in their flesh. So let me just say this about you or someone that you know, because we all know somebody. And maybe we ourselves will be honest if there's a disconnect. If there is a disconnect between your profession and your possession, if you claim and if you believe you are in Christ, but there is duplicity in the way, in what you believe and how you live, if there's a disconnect between what you say and what you do, there's two potential steps for you to take. Number one, pray to the God who saved you and ask him to renew and refresh his work. Because if you are God's work, remember no work of God fails, right? If you are God's work, he's not gonna leave you dying on the vine. That's why people say, people say well, Justin, I know, you know, I, I know this person's saved, you know, but they're just going through something. Listen, Pray for them, get around them and encourage them. But here's the biggest encouragement of them all. God will not let his work fail. And if they belong to him, he will not lose them. He will not. But let's say that someone never belonged to God. They got a false pretense and they did a false religious thing that made them feel better for a season and they left it behind. Then that person needs to confess to God that they never truly surrendered to him and ask him to save them with his power and not their own. Because a lot of us blend our works with God's works and we don't really know what we're justified by. We just think that we did something the church told us to do. Listen, unless you know for sure that your salvation is rooted in what Christ done, listen, I, I wouldn't have a lot of confidence in anything else. If you are saved and you and we who are saved, we have the power of God. And this is the, the thing we'll conclude on, verse nine through 11. But you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he is not his. So sidebar, people that say, well, you know, 
people can get saved, but they don't have the Spirit of God, that first blows out of the water. There's no second work. There's no baptism of the Spirit of God that's separate from salvation. You are, if you are saved, you have the Holy Spirit. You can get more of him. We'll talk about that in a couple of weeks in Romans 12. If you are saved, you are filled with the Holy Spirit. If you are not saved, you are not filled with the Holy Spirit. If you are not filled with the Holy Spirit, you are not saved. Did I say it enough different ways to make it clear? Again, verse nine. No, now, if anyone does not have the spirit of Jesus, he is not his. Verse 10. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit of life, the spirit is life because of righteousness. And this verse 11 is such a big verse. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, what kind of statement is that? If the spirit that raised Jesus is in you, I mean, what, imagine what that would be like. Well, that's what it is like. He who raised Jesus from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Isn't that incredible? So if you are saved, the spirit of God has moved into your heart. These verses make us consider our salvation, whether it be true or false. And if we have been saved, we are filled with the resurrection spirit of God. And let me just ask you, when do you read about the spirit of God making, being on the scene in the Bible and not making a big difference? Anytime you see that God moves in the Bible, I mean, water parts, right? Stuff falls from heaven, people fall over, right? I mean, when God's spirit moves, People are well aware of it. My point is the Holy Spirit is not passive. He's alive, he's active, he's dynamic, he's present, he's persistent, and he's powerful. So if he's in you, he wants to live through you and he wants you to live through him and he's not gonna leave you alone until you do. And I'll just be honest, if somebody claims to be in Christ and they don't have any awareness of the Holy Spirit. What does Romans 8, 9, 10, and 11 say? They're not in Christ. Now that might hurt somebody's feelings, but it might just save them if they get their mind wrapped around it. Because there's, I'll be, I mean, I think it's safe to say there's a lot of people in church every Sunday that don't know what we're talking about when we talk about the Holy Spirit living in us. If we are in Christ, the Holy Spirit is in us. Because if we have been placed in Christ, we have been planted in Christ. Isaiah 27, this was God's will for Israel, but they never could get it. In the days to come, Jacob shall take root. Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots to fill the whole world with fruit. That was God's will for Israel, but Israel couldn't get it because religion and law didn't work. That's a picture of what God does through Christianity, isn't it? And this is what Jesus talks about in John 15. I'm the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he is it that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. This is the picture of Christianity. We are in him and he is in us and he lives through us and we live through him. That's what Romans 8, 1 through 11 says salvation is all about. No condemnation. Sin can't define you. Sin can't disable you. Sin has been forgiven. Sin has been put away you are now filled with the spirit of God. You don't have to live like that anymore. And if you are in Christ, you won't live like that anymore. And when you do slip up and live like that, the spirit of God says, whoa, 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 whoa. You are mine and you can't live like that anymore. We are saved by Christ alone. We can't lose him but we also can't hide him. That'll preach, won't it? People that say, well, you know, I'm saved. I'm always saved. I can't lose him. No, you can't. You cannot lose him because he's not gonna lose you. But let me also say, you can't hide him. 
can you? Remember when Peter denied Jesus? What, what did one of them say there? Peter, you can't deny the fact that you belong to Jesus. Something in you just says otherwise. Even Peter in his sinful denial, he couldn't hide that Jesus was in him. And of course, he came back around very shortly after. We can't lose him. but We also can't hide him. If we are alive in him, we will live by him. Because if he has us, we have him. I gotta say, what an encouraging word about salvation, huh? Uh, probably a good thing that I'm halfway, I'm, I'm doing this halfway with one hand tied behind my back and half my voice because this isn't about me. This is about God, isn't it? About what God has done. Shame on us if we think we do anything to contribute. Glory to God who does all the work. But also, if he is in us, Make way for him to live through us because, listen, and listen, Christian, 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 you know what it's like to try to live in the flesh after you're a Christian. It's miserable. And the Holy Spirit says, you can't get by with that. And if somebody is getting by with it, they need to understand what salvation is really all about. And may God give them the true resurrection that comes through Christ alone. What a gift God has given us. Amen. Amen. How, good he is, how good he is to us. He wants to live through us. Let's pray that he will do just that. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this reminder. Thank you for Romans 8. Lord, this chapter is so awesome. Thank you for the theology that it gives us. You are a God who is able to save to the uttermost. You are a God who does the work. We don't, don't contribute a thing to it. And when you sent Jesus to the cross, he took names and he did the work. But if we have come out of that grave with him, then there's salvation that's gonna work in us. And if it's not working in us, something's not right. And it's not that you're the problem. It's that we need to surrender to you. And Lord, maybe it's to be saved for the first time, but maybe it's to ask you to renew and refresh us and put your spirit of God in us in a fresh and powerful way. God, thank you that you are a God who never makes mistakes and you never fail. But Lord, we pray for that one. We all know somebody that, Lord, they made a false profession. They, they never surrender to you and they need to be saved. Lord, we also pray for that one that's backslid and that one that is denying their true self. Lord, would you move in them and would you take away every bit of peace they have until they get back to that place of total trust in Jesus? Lord, your Holy Spirit is alive. Would you make him alive in us tonight? Renew us and revive us and set us straight on the path to live in you and live by you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.